Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Have you ever noticed that your attitude about any given thing has an impact on how you engage that thing? Have you made that connection? It's true. For instance, a while back I used an illustration about when a student is given an assignment and a due date. The assignment must be turned in anyway, so it may as well be on time, right? Rather than late. But if the student complains, here's the reality. If the student complains the entire time that they're doing the assignment, guess what? It makes it harder for them to get it done. The attitude translates into difficulty in that case. By the way, when they complain a lot, it makes it harder for the parents and the siblings as well, right? Take another example. Take the cold weather. When I step through the door, that biting chill hits me, which I don't appreciate. What do I say? Do I say, I hate the cold, and in misery make my way to the car, and I'm miserable until the heat comes on, the heat finally starts pumping through that car? Or do I think to myself, this chill really wakes me up? <laughs> well, more often it's I hate the cold. But it does make a difference. Think about it. My attitude there may help determine how I engage that entire day, depending on what I have in front of me, and what people experience from me, just the way I interact with the cold. And this is true for anything, house chores, work tasks, family conflict, daily devotions, Bible reading, marriage, parenting, life in the church, traffic, you name it. The attitude we have, which should be a faithful one, right? It, it, it changes the way we interact with the world around us, and it affects everything. Now, that's true for our homework and our approach to the Bible and any other thing, and it's certainly true of the will of God. God has a will. He's sovereignly in His love working it out. He's working it out now. He's working it out in our lives. And if our attitude, everything else, changes the way we engage His will, or changes the way we engage those things, well, certainly our attitude toward His will affects how we're going to engage His will. Remember when Jesus taught His disciples and us to pray? Remember this? Remember what He said? If I could have that first slide, please. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, your kingdom come. This is the Son of God, our Savior, in whom we find salvation. He's, walk, he's walking with us right now. His Spirit is with us. And in a little while, we're going to come to His table together, and He's going to meet with us. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. He's speaking to the Father, teaching us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, having a good attitude towards God's will, in fact, desiring God's will, should be the heart of a Christian. Or another way to say this is that we should be wholehearted. We should be wholehearted about God's will. And that's what I believe the Lord is calling us today from Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. I think you're going to see this in Isaiah 38 and 39. And I'll put it simply, practice wholeheartedness 
so that you work with the will of God. Not against the will of God. Not having a bad attitude. Not wrestling against it. Not subtly subverting it. Not that you can, by the way. It's kind of like that assignment. It's going to be due. Not working against it because you can't defeat it. God will have His will. We only fool ourselves when we think otherwise. But instead, aligning our heart, our mind, our attitude to be wholehearted about God's will. There's no changing God's will. He alone is is good and He alone knows what He's doing. So at the end of it all, we want Him in control. We don't want some human in control. Any human that believes that it would be better to have humans in control of destiny or themselves in control of destiny, besides the fact that that idea is a complete unrealistic and impossible fantasy because humans can't control destiny because there's more to destiny than destiny, right? Destiny is not a person. God's behind destiny. Any human that desires, that desires a foolish thing. Just ask the hundreds of millions from the last century that were slaughtered in the name of humanistic utopias. And there are plenty of other examples of human avarice in this world. So again, the question is not whether God will accomplish His will. The only real question is whether we're going to be wholeheartedly in step with it, working with His will. Will we get behind it? Will we work for His will? Will it be our desire, our prayer, let your kingdom come, your will, let it be done, your will be done. Or will, we stubbornly, or will we stubbornly resist, drag our feet, complain continually, or, or pretend to be wholehearted while, like Ananias and Sapphira, holding back part of the treasure, part of their riches to keep for ourselves, saying we're wholehearted but keeping some back? Well, let's see the story of King Hezekiah of Judah. Let's see what it teaches us through two stages of his life. First of all, the mostly wholehearted stage. Let's take a look at the mostly wholehearted stage. This is going to be from Isaiah chapter 38. We're going to read the beginning of the story, verses 1 through 8. Hezekiah 38, 1 through 8. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz, Turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the ten steps by which it had declined. That's pretty amazing. Shadow going backward instead of forward. 
not even staying still, but going backward. To summarize here, Hezekiah is quite ill. There's some evidence that his illness is for well over a year, maybe even up to two years. And the Lord sends the prophet Isaiah to tell him what's going to happen next. So you won't have to guess. Get your house in order. Now's the time. You're going to pass. Your days on earth are ending, Hezekiah. And at this point, Hezekiah is 39 years old. So even in those times, that's a relatively short life. It's certainly not a good long life full of years where he's finally gathered to his people as we hear of other saints in the Old Testament. Further, the heir to the throne of Hezekiah, the heir to the dynasty of David, is not yet born. So even though Hezekiah doesn't mention this, it raises a big question for him. How how will there be a successor for the house of David that God has promised forever if Hezekiah dies now? So between the sorrow of death itself, the sorrow of a shortened life, and the potential of no heir... There's good reason for tears, and shedding tears is exactly what Hezekiah does. He does it bitterly, but he also prays, and the Lord listens to his prayer. By the way, there's two other accounts of the story, uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and one of those accounts tells us that Isaiah hasn't even left the palace yet. So he, he comes, he delivers the word of the Lord to Hezekiah, tough news, you're going to die. He's walking out, he's on his way out of the palace. He's basically going through the inner courtyard on his way out when God speaks to him again and says, go back. So he hasn't even left yet. The Lord tells Isaiah to go back and and tell, and tell Hezekiah, I'm giving you 15 more years of life. And that must have been some prayer to change God's mind, right? To change it from, you're going to die soon, to, I'll give you 15 more years. So let's take a closer look at that prayer. And it comes to us in uh, Isaiah 38, verses 2 to 3. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with the whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And notice here the concept of walking before God with a whole heart. You can see right in the verse that it's right in line with faithfulness and with doing good in the sight of God. Good works in the sight of God. Faithfulness. So, so that's all, that all goes together. They're essentially synonyms, but they expand on each other a little bit, right? They, 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 they detail it out a little bit. They help, us under, they, they help us understand a little bit better. And we're going to focus on that idea of walking before God with a whole heart. So Hezekiah is trusting the Lord and he's walking before him with a whole heart. And in the books of the Kings and the Chronicles, there's about a dozen examples or dozen uses of a similar type of phrase. Maybe not exact, but a similar type of phrase of, of walking before God with a whole heart. It's used to describe how faithful Israelite kings were to God, or, or how faithful an Israelite king was to God. Either they did walk before God with a whole heart, or they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or they didn't walk before God with a whole heart, and they didn't do all that was right in the eyes of God. Or sometimes they did what was right in the eyes of God, but didn't do so with a whole heart. And there's these different examples. 
And so, for example, when David sets his son Solomon in as king, he has some words for him. And this is what he says to him. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Now, in the King James Version, the expression whole heart is often translated as perfect, a perfect heart. So it reads a perfect heart. It's a good translation. It's a very good translation as long as we understand what that is meant properly. So think of wholehearted in this way. Think of the sacrificial lamb. You know that the, a lamb for the old covenant sacrificial system had to be perfect. It had to be whole, perfect or whole. That doesn't mean that it should be more than all the other lambs, although Ideally, you would take the best of your flock. But what it means is is that the lamb needs to be everything a lamb should be. You know, it shouldn't have three legs. It should have four legs. It shouldn't have been mangled in a wolf attack and like nobody else wants that lamb. You can't even sell it at market. Oh, okay, give that to the Lord. I don't need it anyway. No, that's, that's not the idea. It's not the sickest or the weakest in the flock that you don't mind getting rid of. It should be everything that a lamb should be. Perfect and whole and spotless. You you look at it and say, oh, that's a beautiful lamb. That's the one to bring before the Lord. Whole. Because we're wholehearted. The same is true here. Hezekiah is not saying that he's sinless. You can even see that in the upcoming verses. Instead, Hezekiah is saying that he has been what a faithful king of Israel should be. The wholehearted king puts the Lord first, cares for the people, behaves justly. Hezekiah has done all of that. He has worked. You can read about him in these different accounts, how he has worked to make sure that the people of Israel were provided for. There was great provision. There was even good security after the the thing with Assyria. But he trusted the Lord during that time. He didn't trust Egypt. He trusted the Lord. Remember that in the Scriptures, heart doesn't refer... So we're talking about a whole heart, right? Remember that in the Scriptures, heart doesn't refer to the seat of affections like it, mean today, like it may mean today. When we talk about heart, where you hear songs where the heart is involved, you generally think strong emotions, right? But in the Scriptures, it's more than that. Rather, the heart refers to the core of your personhood, the essence of who you are. It's a full combination of what you think, what you feel, what you decide. It's the mind. It's the will. It's the emotions. It's who you are fundamentally at the bottom of it. We might call it today our character. But I think it's even more than what we would just say our character. It's why you feel the way you feel about things. It's why you have the impulses you have. It's why you make the decisions that you make. That's what the Scripture is referring to when it talks about the heart. And so when it talks about being wholehearted, it means all of you for all of God. 
Hezekiah is essentially saying that, Lord, I've lived rightly before you, trusting you, and it's not fair after I've trusted you and lived for you and obeyed you in this way. It's not fair that you wouldn't give me a good, full, long life. And you know what? The Lord doesn't take time to refute that. He does a little bit because in the other accounts, or at least in one of the other accounts, the Lord says, I'm going to do this for the sake of my glory and for my, the sake of my servant David. So he doesn't, in other words, so that David's dynasty would continue like he promised. So God puts the emphasis on his glory. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't turn to Hezekiah and say, okay, because you asked in that way. You see, it's not because Hezekiah's prayer was formulated perfectly that God answered him. But nor does God refute that he had been, at times at least, a wholehearted king before the Lord. And the Lord does grant his request. He gives him 15 more years. And, and what an amazing blessing that is. So Hezekiah, he's a wholehearted king, right? He's wholehearted. He's our example, right? Well, yes, but not exactly. And that's not primarily what he's here for, right? He's not primarily to be an example to us for how to be wholehearted, although that's helpful where he is. But he is a foreshadowing of something else. He teaches us that we're going to need something more than Hezekiah and more than ourselves. So there's more to it than this. You see, after this great deliverance and salvation from the Lord, what would you expect from Hezekiah? What would you expect his next words to be? If Hezekiah was going to write something after his prayer and and insert it into the Scriptures, if it was going to be inserted into the record of what had happened here, what do you anticipate it being? You would think it would be some kind of jubilation, right? Some kind of celebration. Praise to God for hearing Him and raising Him up and saving Him again and delivering Him. How about that supernatural, amazing sign that God gave to prove to Him, listen, you're going to be healed. Here's the sign. The shadow is going to go backwards. And then the actual healing you would expect him jumping up and down through words on a page but instead we get something else in the next scriptures we're going to see some praise you'll see it there and it does glorify God but the truth is what you're going to see next is in the traditional form of a lament from that time that's the genre of the next portion of Scripture we're going to read. It's a lament. It's sorrowful. It's mourning. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because instead of celebration, we get mourning. And do you know what he's going to be mourning? He's going to be mourning his mortality. He's just been told. He's been given more life on this earth. And instead of celebrating that, he's going to mourn his mortality. How often do we do that? How often does God bless us and we mourn? We miss it and we lament his blessings all around us. His kindness, his goodness, his grace. 
but we're fixated on that one thing we don't like, that, that thing that we believe should just change, and if it doesn't change, we just can't be happy, and it's just not right. Oh, it, it sticks us in a place where we can fail to praise Him. Let me ask you, did, did you, did you praise Him this morning while we were singing? The worship team, Doug and the worship team, led us so well. Let us so well as a congregation to say, come on, join with us. Let's, let's all lift our voices as, as loudly as we can. Let's make a joyful noise to Him. Let's look at what He's done. Let's look at His salvation. Let's look at His grace, His worthiness. He leads us in reading the Scriptures. Did your heart rise? Did you, did you put your effort into it? Did you open your mouth? Did you sing and praise Him together? Or did you sit there? Oh, that, that kind of, they kind of stumbled on that one. <laughs> you know, uh, I, don't, I don't love this song. I don't know. I don't know it real well. You know, I'm kind of, I, you know, I'm kind of in a place for, you know, I, I don't have a good voice. I have nothing to offer here. God's people are to join together in songs and hymns. Spiritual songs and with one voice, just like we come to the one Lord's table and we partake of the, His one body and His one blood together. We lift, a, we lift one voice as we stand shoulder to shoulder and sing His praise. Let those praises rise. You see? Now this is going to be the longest portion I'm going to read to you today. It's not that long. Let's read it. I'm not going to comment on a whole lot of it, but I want you to see it. And again, you'll see praise in here, but you're going to see lament, sorrow, mourning over human mortality. And in light of God's deliverance of him, it really wasn't the most appropriate approach. Isaiah chapter 38, verses 9 through 20. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom from day to night. You bring me to an end. I calm myself until morning like a lion. He breaks on my bones from day to night. You bring me to an end like a swallow or a crane. I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living. He thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me. And we will play my, my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover 
Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? And that, that becomes even clearer when you read the other uh, accounts because you see that he asks for that before he's healed. But in this account, it's tagged to the end. Now, we know that Hezekiah was a good king. Remember, he's going to trust the Lord to deal with the Assyrians, and that's a great revival for God's people. It's awesome. But what is this response to this great miracle of healing? Well, it's not quite, is it? It's not quite wholehearted. It's not quite wholehearted. Now, take a moment now and consider what this means for us. Think of it. Because we're capable of times of great wholeheartedness toward the Lord, being all that a Christian should be, remaining, abiding in the vine, walking as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, walking in righteousness because we have the Holy Spirit in us and we don't have to sin. We can overcome it. And we've been transformed. We've been created. We're a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. And the Lord is transforming us. We can be wholehearted hearted. But, but even if we've experienced that in the past, we have to be aware that we also have the ability, the capacity, even the inclination to slip away from that. Sometimes, especially as the years go by, to compromise, to let other priorities creep in, to be less than wholehearted. The Spirit of God wants us all to be really transparent with Him. So that if we're being less than than wholehearted right now, if we're being less than wholehearted, the Spirit of God would convict us. And we'd say, Lord, search me, show me. Where, where, where am I being wholehearted? Lord Jesus, please work in me. I want to follow you with a whole heart. Maybe you're already identifying ways in which you're seeing that you've been less than wholehearted in your worship of our Lord. And please see this. There's only one way to serve the Lord, and that's holy. To do so with less invites more and more compromise, and we're going to see that in the second stage. So let me remind you and and put it before you and and try to keep it as clear as possible. Practice wholeheartedness so that you work with the will of God. God, practice it. Recognize God's working His will all the time. Let your your heart be, Lord, let your will be done on earth, in my life, in my world, in my moments, in my time, as it is in heaven. Now let's take a look at the second stage of Hezekiah's life, and that's half-hearted. We're going to see some real half-heartedness here. And I think it serves as a warning, but I also think it, it's going to deliver hope to us if we look at it. Now, Hezekiah's illness must have been significant, and his recovery must have been headline news because it reached all the way to the Chaldeans. Uh, they're well to the east of Judah, well to the east. And we're about to be introduced to an interesting character in our text, Merodach Baladan. Yeah. Baladan, yeah, I said that right. Merodach Baladan managed to become the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans and lead them to independence against Assyria while they were still at their peak. And the remarkable thing about Merodach Baladan is he did it twice. He did it once, led them to independence against the huge Assyria, leads them into independence. 
He gets ousted, comes back, does it again. And then he gets ousted again by Assyria. Maybe that was part of the trouble that brought uh, Sennacherib and his armies back to Assyria, back to Nineveh and Assyria. They oust him again, but he escapes to what we would say is modern-day Iran, modern-day Iran. And he, he can, from there, he continues to try to make life hard for the Assyrians to the day of his death. You can imagine, Melodek Baladin is looking for any way to undermine Assyrian power. He's looking for allies. So let's read what happens. Go to Isaiah chapter 39, verses 1 through 8, which is the whole chapter. Isaiah 39, 1 through 8. At that time, Erodic Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Do you remember what Hezekiah prays for in chapter 38? I'm sorry, chapter 37. A couple chapters back. Sennacherib and the Assyrians are right on the doorstep of Jerusalem, threatening the end of days for Judah. And Hezekiah prays to the Lord for deliverance. And at the very end of his prayer in chapter 37, he gives the Lord a reason why they should be delivered. See it, see it here, chapter 37, verse 20. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And earlier in this book, we're told that Jerusalem, or earlier in the book of Isaiah, we're told that Jerusalem would one day again like it was in the days of Solomon, be a place for all the nations to come and, and be amazed at the splendor of the Lord and worship Him on His holy mountain. That the people would come, the nations would come, and they would worship the Lord. 
Well, here, so, so Israel would be this, this, this powerful, bright, shining, undiminishable light on the face of the earth that could not be denied. And people would have to say, we've got to go and, and give homage to the Lord. And here, because of God's great salvation to Hezekiah personally, raising him up, an envoy from the nations has come to Jerusalem asking about his healing. Now that envoy from Babylon, they may have been there for political purposes. They might have been trying to find an alliance. But they said at least, at least they said, it seems that they came at least in part, that's what it says, because of his healing. And this was a perfect opportunity for Hezekiah to share the gospel, the good news with the Babylonians. And Hezekiah 100% missed it. He missed it. He missed it. And do we know why he missed it? Here's why he missed it. He missed it because he was half-hearted instead of whole-hearted. You see, this was the perfect opportunity, the perfect moment to say to the Babylonians, I'm so glad you came. Look what the Lord has done for me. I was a dead man, but now I'm alive. I was lost, but now I'm found. Let me tell you about His wonders, His riches, His salvation, His deliverance. Go and tell everyone you know. All should worship Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Tell your King to come with more and come worship the Lord on His holy mountain. But that's not what we get in the story, is it? He's not wholehearted in this moment. He didn't think to glorify the Lord. Do you know why he didn't think to glorify the Lord? Because he wanted to glorify himself. What's, what's wrong with a little showing off, right? What's wrong with a little pride? I mean, it's just the truth. Look at these storehouses. Look how massive they are. Look how orderly everything is. I'm in charge of all this. What's wrong with a little bit of showing off and boasting? We ourselves know this, don't we? Here's the truth, my dear friends. We know God gives grace to the humble, resists the proud. We know that our Lord Himself humbled Himself, leaving the throne room of heaven. Imagine just that degree of humility, just that degree of humility coming to earth as a human from the throne room of heaven was such a massive amount of humility. You and I have never come close to that a kind of humility. Anything like it, anything we've tried to put on, has it's like filthy rags in comparison to that kind of humility. But He doesn't stop there. Our Lord goes to the cross and is destroyed destroyed by his own creatures. Can you see how anti-Christ pride is? How destructive it is of his purposes, of his glory. Not that it can destroy his purposes, but, but for us to be part of them, to working with the will of God. Oh, it can hinder that. It can obscure it. It can, it can trip us. It can take us out of it like it did with Hezekiah. 
We really can't glorify the Lord if we're busy trying to make much of ourselves. We just can't do it. It doesn't work like that. Don't you praise the Lord that he's so committed to persevere with us. All our pride, all our sin. He he forgives it. He, He pays for it on that cross and he gives us a newness of life so that we don't walk under the condemnation of that, but we have every opportunity, every opportunity to keep learning how to walk in humility before Him. Hezekiah makes it all about himself, shows off his riches, his treasures, his armaments, all of his armaments, by the way. He wants to make a full impression of greatness on them. And I think it's worth mentioning this. I think it's worth mentioning because it applies directly to us. I, I want us to get this. I think, we, I think I need to get it. I think we all need to get it. Are we ready? It was kind of a joke. It's kind of a big joke. I heard one commentator say, or I, I read one commentator said, it's kind of like... Um, New York City fashion designers going to a very small town somewhere and going to the clothing store and the the sales clerk boasting about all the fashion designs they have. You know, something like that. Because Babylon had plenty of wealth and Babylon had plenty of military power. For goodness sakes, they're actually by military might resisting Assyria. For goodness sakes, they are the next world power, world superpower coming on the scene. For goodness sakes, they will be the ones to overrun Jerusalem and carry off Hezekiah's sons and make them eunuchs in the palaces of the kings. The guys from Babylon, I'm sure they're, they're, they're being polite, right? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's really something you got there. That's really amazing. But all the while, they're like, these knuckleheads, this is easy pickings. Once we're done with Assyria, I know we can get a whole lot more money. Oh, my goodness. That's us, right? We have our little treasures. We think we're something. We boast in ourselves more than we realize. But we're really not impressive. We're not that impressive in the end. And see, to glorify oneself, it's a fool's errand. And so let's be motivated by the positive side of this, which is God is worthy of all this glory, and look what our Lord did to humble Himself. But let's also recognize the negative side of this equation, which is to glory in oneself is a fool's errand. Fool's errand. That's why we should let the lips of another praise us and not our own. Think about this to apply for a moment. Aren't we doing something similar to Hezekiah when we portray ourselves as more righteous than we really are? Or how about when we are weighing out some decision and we talk to others about it and then that temptation comes to communicate only the good and righteous motives and to hide the selfish ones? Sometimes we're just not even honest with ourselves to to admit that they're even there. That the real reason I'm not doing this is not because I'm concerned about others or, or because of some high and lofty moral concept that I'm, I'm putting out there and I want you to get stuck on. But, but actually what's happening is I'm, I'm greedy. I, I don't want any harm to come to myself. By the way, most times people can see through that. 
They usually see through it and they're, they're thinking, do I, do, I, do I burst this bubble or, or, or do I try to work with them to help them see what's really going on? Most times people can see it. How about when we pretend that everything's good, going great in our lives, when things are melting down and we just don't want to disclose anything even to our close brothers and sisters because of simple pride. We might say it's because we don't want to be judged. We might say that, but in reality, we're the ones hiding and judging. We're judging others. Is that wholeheartedness? Is that wholeheartedness? No, of course it's not. If the Lord is going to be glorified in us, if He's going to be glorified through this, through us, if He's going to be glorified in this earth, you and I, Crossway Church, we need to be wholehearted. We must be. And isn't this a sad conclusion to the story of Hezekiah? It's truly a sad note to be left off on. Here's a king who was wholehearted at points, but it's really hard to get away from that last statement that he was thinking, right? That statement, it tells us, it tells us what he was thinking. He commends the Lord's Word. The Lord's Word is good. You know, you almost get the sense like, he, he, he's almost like humbly repentant. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I did do that. And, and okay, yeah, if, my, if everything gets taken, if, if, if everything gets overrun and taken by the Babylonians and, and my sons have to go into exile and become eunuchs there in the palaces and serve them, it's, you know what, you know what, I, I accept that. I, I accept it. Oh, how pious, Right? Yeah, because you'll be gone. And there'll be peace in your time. And the Scripture actually tells us that's what he's thinking. That's what he's thinking. That's not wholehearted either. It's that let my kids deal with that. God forbid. God forbid. But that's where half-heartedness leads. You see, that can happen to us when we're half-hearted in our homes, when we're half-hearted about the condition of our children, when we're half-hearted in what it means to follow Christ, when we're, when we're their example, when they're at our home and we're supposed to communicate to them and entrust to them the gospel. God forbid. If we're half-hearted... What have we just taught them about the Lord? Church has a low priority. Uh, pastoral authority has nothing to do with us. Uh, life together, fellowship isn't that big of a deal. You know, what the Lord teaches us through the New Testament about the local church, it's just not that, it doesn't matter that much. Sitting under the Word of God, having that affect us and orienting ourselves to it, in spite of all that the world is pressing upon us. Well, you know, we can equivocate here and there and do this and that. And filling our time with things that, that, that don't benefit us. All that half-heartedness. All that half-heartedness. Oh, it's corruption in our lives. It affects the church. It keeps us from glorifying Him the way He deserves to be glorified. It keeps us from the satisfaction of knowing Him. It keeps us from working with His will in that wholehearted way that's so delightful in the end. God forbid. How sad, how terrible Hezekiah is the point we're left off on. And I want to make this point. This is really important. You know, Isaiah is not in strictly chronological order. The story is not in strictly chronological order. And here's why. It's in theological order. 
It's because the Lord wants us to focus on certain truths in an order that builds. And so we learn through the story of Hezekiah's wholehearted trust in the Lord regarding Assyria, we learn from last week that the Lord can be trusted at all times. But now we learn that He was also susceptible like us. He's not worse than us. He's probably better than us. Truthfully. I mean, He had to face Assyria, right? Pretty big responsibility. If I'm wrong about this, we're all dead in a very bad way. He trusts the Lord in that time. And now we learn that Hezekiah was susceptible, like us, to allowing self-centeredness to to torpedo blessings from the Lord and to compromise Him. And and, and we got to know that can happen to us too. But we also learn something else that's so important. If Hezekiah's story ended with deliverance from that monster of a superpower, Assyria, we might think that he was simply the fulfillment of the Messiah that was promised earlier in Isaiah. Can you see that? If the story ended there, we'd be like, well, there it is. There's the fulfillment. And many people would say that, and trust me, they would. And they do. But because we see at the end of the story the sadness, the brokenness, the half-heartedness, Guess what that does for us? It helps us know unequivocally that He's not the Messiah. Someone else has to come. Someone better. Someone who always fulfills the will of the Father. Someone who is always wholehearted in fulfilling the will of the Father. And so, dear friends, practice wholeheartedness. So that you work with the will of God. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.